Movements, movements of God involve humans. Humans are messy, but through this messiness, God is faithful. Okay, let me say that again quickly. Movements of God involve humans. Humans are messy, but through this messiness, God is faithful. And he's faithful to accomplish his purposes. So again, that's kind of my big uh, idea on what I think this passage is getting at. And we'll look more at that. But have you ever been really encouraged by being a part of something like a, maybe a, a church plant or a Bible study or maybe a new and exciting uh, relationship uh, with, with, a, with a friend or a significant other um, Maybe you were on a mission trip. Maybe you went to summer camp. Um, something where you felt like you were kind of like, I'm, I'm at the mountaintop here. Um, which is how I felt a few minutes ago. And now we're back in the valley. We're trying to work back up. On the mountaintop. You, but you're, you're just like elated with, with what seems to be happening and what God seems to be doing around you. But then only as things get going, that excitement, that anticipation, that uh, sense that God is really uh, kind of involved in this situation that you're a part of, it, it, it begins to like get off track. It begins to dissipate um, into this deep, maybe ending place of disappointment. So from high to low. You start out, this is like amazing, God is really at work, and at some point along the way, you're looking around going, you know, what, what's happened? I was, I was so excited, I was anticipating, I, I thought God was here, and he was working, he was doing stuff. Um, what, do we, what do we do? I, I'm just guessing, yes, that's happened to you, right? How do we, how do we respond to that? What, what do we do with it? How should we think about it. And so as I was thinking about this, um, and, a, and a good example of this, a lot of you will be familiar with uh, Ravi Zacharias, right? So this is just one of those, put it onto the long list of things that have happened over the past year that have just been a, a devastating loss. If you don't know Ravi Zacharias, if you've been in a church for any significant amount of time, I would just assume, and you should probably assume, he's probably left an influence on you in some form indirectly, if not directly. So Ravi Zacharias was uh, a, what's called a, a Christian apologist, um, kind of a philosopher. He was like a remarkable communicator, wrote a lot of books, um, engaging with various world philosophies and uh, suggesting and arguing and presenting the case that uh, Christianity is the most coherent worldview that's functional and practical and real and true. Okay, so uh, I, I think he came on the scene in a big way, probably like 25 years ago. So for 25 years, at least, he's been traveling around the world, speaking to just like huge crowds of people all over the world, developed something called the Ravi Zacharias Ministry. Um, which you can go to their website today and find all sorts of really profound, helpful information. 
So the sad thing is, you know, assuming that we, we would believe God's spirit was involved in that ministry, right? The sad and tragic thing is um, he, he got cancer and he passed away. And then after his, his death, it really emerged that he had been perpetuating sexual abuse on very vulnerable women for many years. And it's, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, they did a full-out investigation. And so it's a very tragic sort of ending to what appeared to be this very promising, God-oriented, spirit-filled sort of movement. And as a Christian sitting back, you're just like, this is, this is absurd. I don't, I don't have a category for this sort of thing that's, that's helpful. He was undeniably, this man, used for God's kingdom and helping so many people, sharing the gospel to thousands, probably millions, and yet left this incredible wake of destruction. And it's just a really tragic story. What do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with this? Let me pray, and then we will begin to think about that. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your mercy, for your guidance, and for your goodness to be ours in Christ as you have promised for it to be. And as we think about your movements in this world and how we are a part of that, may we be able to have discernment and wisdom encouragement and correction and may this time be fruitful for all of us for your kingdom's sake amen so looking at our text again we're in acts 15 we're continuing this journey of acts last week we learned about the jerusalem council there was this this thing put together to work out this big dispute that was going on between uh, how to deal with the the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers coming into the faith. You know, what must they do to be saved, these Gentiles? How Jewish in culture do they have to become in order to be truly saved? So uh, Rob dealt with that last last week, and there was a resolution. They they got together. They had a uh, answer, and they said, "Here's." Here's what this looks like, right? So there's some resolution. And they rejoiced, right? In verse 31 of uh, chapter 15, it talks about them rejoicing when this good news about this resolution to this problem came out. But this is a sign that things are not just going to continue going along as if heaven is... 100% already descended upon the earth and everything is perfect in this early working of God's movement to build his church. It's It's a big sign that there are humans involved with this and that means it's going to be a mess at points along the way. So we come then to chapter 15, verse 36, and I think you see the second human mess come onto the scene. So 
let me uh, read it quickly. Just those three verses. This is probably what we're going to be focusing on. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here you have Paul wanting to visit this group of churches. Barnabas, one of the other apostles, he wanted to take this man named John Mark. But... Paul did not, because previously, as it states here, John Mark had, in Paul's opinion, deserted them on a previous missionary journey. So there was a split, a sharp disagreement. So it's it's interesting. So John Mark, and then in other places, he's just referred to as Mark. So John would have been his um, his Hebraic name, his Hebrew name. Uh, John, rather. Did I say John or Mark? John would have been his Hebrew name. Mark would have been his more Greek-speaking name. So on the streets of the Greek-speaking world, that's how he would have been known. When he was in Jewish circles, uh, he would have been known as John. So John Mark. So in Colossians 4.10, we read about Mark, John Mark, and it's clarified that he's Barnabas's cousin, right? So there's a, a familial connection here between Barnabas and John Mark. Uh, Acts 13.13 is where we we read about John Mark leaving and going back to Jerusalem. And so in Paul's words, where he deserted them. So you can go read that in Acts 13.13. We don't know why he left. It's not made clear. Uh, But he left. And to the chagrin of the Apostle Paul, right? So there's this sharp disagreement, as it says. This, it, the idea here is there, there wasn't a very emotional response that they had to this. They were very upset about this issue with each other. They had a fight. They had a falling out. So you're, you're, you're just like rolling along. Everything's good. God is doing all this amazing stuff. All these people are coming into the faith, and then you have just these two people that just can't get along, it seems. They have a disagreement. It's like, really? This is going to, like, get in the way of, like, God's miraculous workings and dealings on the earth in this very early time of church history? So they had this sharp, emotional, I'm sure they, like, said maybe things they regretted saying later. That's, That's the idea. Of what's going on here. And they went their separate ways. There's no immediately satisfying conclusion. So the Jerusalem council. They worked out the problems. Here you have a second problem. And they don't really get it worked out. 
So you got these two human messes that kind of come onto the scene. But despite these messes, you, you see also that God continues to advance the gospel. God continues to advance the gospel. And in fact, I would take it even further. I would say he does it through these human messes. It's, it's, it's like the means, one of the means by which he continues to advance the gospel. It is almost as if for every human situation that stands to get in the way, here in Acts, and I think we can apply that later on, there's this divine response to, to show assurance, to show and to offer comfort, to give this reassurance that this, this thing is not going to crash and burn, ultimately. It might, it might look like that when they're in the midst of a heated discussion. Let's take John Mark, and I'm not going with that guy. Get him out of here. He deserted us last time. These are the two, two of the most important people in the, that's okay. Two of the most important people in the whole like story at this point, And they can't even agree on taking this third person. It's going to crash and burn. No, it won't. So again, we had the Jerusalem council, right? Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. There was resolution there. They worked it out. They moved on. And here you have something of a resolution, but I think it's more showing the point that God keeps working through this, despite the human failings. It goes on to say that Paul goes with Silas, right? They don't go with Barnabas. They don't go with John Mark, but Paul and Silas pair off and they go. And it says they go on to strengthen the churches. They meet Timothy. They bring Timothy into the fold, and the churches continue to grow. It's, it's using this, this language, if you keep reading, about how much success they had in advancing the gospel throughout the world, despite the fight. So it, it includes this repetition even on how the Spirit redirected their efforts, as if the writer of Acts, uh, Luke, is saying, you know, the Spirit of God is here. The Spirit of God is working. The Spirit of God is behind this. In 16.6, it says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. In verse 7, it says they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Right? So it's just emphasizing that God's Spirit is guiding this. He's guiding their work. He's guiding their advance of the gospel and preaching it to the world. There's a few more notable advances of God's work in this passage. They move into Macedonia as a result of Paul's vision. And it says they concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So he had this vision, this dream about this Macedonian man. He goes over to Macedonia and the gospel goes into that area for the first time ever through Paul right after this. A little bit later, we read about Lydia. I think it says she's the seller of purple, probably suggesting she's a person of wealth and means, very industrious. But there's this emphasis on God's sovereign grace towards her. It says 
she was sitting there listening to the apostles. And it emphasizes that the Lord opened her heart to respond. Not very long ago, Paul and Barnabas are yelling at each other. And here they're sitting here with this woman, a Gentile woman who was a God-fearer. That means she had some sort of respect for the God of the Jews. And it says the Lord opened up her heart. He did a miraculous work in this woman's life through Paul. So this is not a human enterprise. It's a divine enterprise. It's a divine work. It's a divine work of God's spirit. And this work moves through and it, 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 it slides along this, this messy human involvement. God is, is faithful despite that. God is faithful in that. God is faithful to use that and to accomplish his purposes. So this whole section is brimming, I think, despite these two human messes that kind of come onto the scene, this whole section is brimming with encouragement. That encouragement comes because God's word is evident. It's exciting. It's encouraging. Three, three E's right there, if you didn't pick up on that. Evident, exciting, encouraging. Don't forget it. This must inform our way of experiencing God's work despite human failings. This, this juxtaposition of these human messes next to the undoubtable emphasis upon God's work and spirit moving forward. So by the way, I said there was no immediate resolution to this skirmish, this schism. But um, later on, in 1 Corinthians, this is later in, in chronology, 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking highly of Barnabas. Somewhere along the line, they, 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 they came back together. They, they didn't just cut the relationship off totally and destroy it forever. He says, bring, he also says this, bring Mark with you. This is when uh, Paul is, I believe, in prison. He says, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in my ministry. I think it's the same John Mark. We can't be 100% sure. I think it's the same John Mark. And, and I think he's saying, bring John Mark. He's very important to me. You know, it's a really profound situation that's shaped up in the end. So this, is, this, this whole thing is, again, the emphasis on the human messes and the works of God, despite those. So I think that's what the passage is, is kind of bringing to the surface. So now I want to I make some observations. I was thinking uh, I'd, like, I'd like to in, invite God to work through some sharp disagreements we might have. I'm just, I'm just kidding. My wife is getting nervous. You know, I got, I got some uh, real problems with you people. You know, airing of grievances here. No, nothing like that. Don't worry. I just want to make some observations. And 
Um, there's a lot of interesting things we could talk about here. I have, I have a couple. So first, I think one observation is that we have to acknowledge that hard, messy, bad things are part of the experience for, for God's people. It's just how it is. I don't like that. I, I struggle to accept it, and I certainly struggle to embrace it. But it's just how it is. You, you cannot escape it. You live on this earth, that's reality. You have to deal with it. And you have to find a way for these things to go together. That That is true, and that God is also true, right? So next week, we're going to read about Paul and Silas being thrown into prison after this. Right? Bad things happen. Jesus was killed. Right? Bad things happen. Messes. David was hunted like he was a wild animal. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed. People were slaughtered. This is God's protected city, capital, temple, destroyed. Corey Tenboom was put into a concentration camp. If any of you know the Corey Tenboom story, I'm sure a lot of you do. C.S. Lewis's wife died. All of this, at some level, was because humans were involved. And earlier when I was talking about if you've ever been part of a church plant, that can be really exciting, really fun stuff. Most church plants fail. Most of them don't work. So at one point, you're so like, yes, God is definitely in this. And a couple years later, where, where is this? It's, it's dead. Not every Christian relationship will be life-giving. Some of them are life-sucking. Right? None that I know. I mean, I've just heard. That's how it can be. There's difficulties. There's frustrations. Persecutions. Alienations oppressions, all of this comes through human activity. It's all part of the deal. So, first observation. We have to acknowledge that. It's just true. Second observation. God operates through and despite human brokenness. He operates through, but also despite human brokenness. In the words of Joseph, way back in the book of Genesis, what you meant you know, his brothers sold him into, sla- into slavery. All these bad things happened to him. He meets them at the end of the story, embraces them. They thought he was going to have them killed. He says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus' death is the clearest example that God operates through and despite human brokenness. Acts 2.22, just a little earlier in this book, says he was delivered, Jesus, He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Perhaps the greatest demonstration of how human culpability factors into God's grace and salvation for his people. Paul and Barnabas had this problem, but it led to Paul meeting Timothy. If you know anything about Timothy, there's there's two letters in the New Testament named after him. Because Timothy became essential in the early church. Our our current church structure and and governance throughout most of the world, in some way, looks back to the letters of Timothy, written to Timothy by Paul. 
right? It's still very crucial stuff for us. Timothy was a crucial person in the story. Without this skirmish, though, you have to wonder, maybe Paul wouldn't have ever met Timothy. And he writes to Timothy, and he says things like, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. They had this very special relationship. So God works through this. He, the, this human will, which often messes things up, is somehow co- totally compatible with God's will, which, which keeps going, keeps marching through history. And these two things are not at odds. Ultimately, they run parallel to each other. So I think Charles Spurgeon said, it's like two banks of the same river. You, if you don't have one of those banks, if you don't have human will, you don't have God's will, you don't have a river, right? You have a flood or whatever, a lake. Two banks of the same river and they run parallel through history, God's will and human will. So first observation, acknowledge that things are hard and messy. Second observation, acknowledge or perceive or appreciate or grow to value that God operates through that brokenness. And then third, third observation. So to fully grasp the goodness and the mercy of God, we as Christians, as followers of Christ, we must, at some level, engage in the lives of other brothers and sisters. We must do that with humility and with a sturdy kind of love. So in another life, I lived in, um, I lived in Montreal, Canada. That's where I met my wife. I was involved in some uh, church planting activity there, which is how I know how firsthand, how exciting it can be, and also how depressing it can be. And anyway, there was a girl um, that I, I sort of worked with. Her name was Chantal. She's a, she's a Quebecer. Um, she was like a very, very sharp person in terms of t- intelligence, very articulate through her French accent. She was also um, very opinionated, very passionate. Um, I, I really liked and appreciated her. But we got into a situation involved in ministry um, ideas, and there, there was a sharp disagreement. I, won't, I mean, it's not really important what it was. But we had a very sharp disagreement. Um, I, I think I handled it okay. I, I think, I don't remember the exact conversation. I think I probably could have handled it better. Um, she also handled it okay. But it was hard. It was a hard conversation. I still remember it. And every time I think of Montreal, somewhere in view, Chantal comes into the scene. And this conversation kind of comes into the scene. But the story didn't stop there, right? We didn't just diverge and go on our separate ways. Um, Afterwards, after this conversation for months, it was awkward. We had to see each other. We would have meetings, a group of people in in the place, her apartment. It was, I was in her home. It it was awkward. It was hard. Um, We didn't, I I didn't like it. I, I just, all I knew how to do, I just tried really hard to treat her like a sister. Um, to not assume that she was like evil, because that's how it felt. <laughs> Remember, Katie? Yes. Katie was there. She saw it. Um, 
So I, I, I just tried not to be angry, but I think I probably was. And she later on, she shared with me that she was really angry at me. So, as I said, though, the story doesn't end. We went through like a rough time. And nothing really miraculous happened to change it. But we just got to a point where I think that we just appreciated each other and respected each other so much that it kind of just dissolved. And she told me later, she's like, yeah, I was really angry at you, but you... You just always treated me kindly. I was like, that's exactly how I felt. You just, you treated me kindly. And you didn't, it would have been easy not to, right? And so because of that messiness, that human engagement, I wanted to just like never see her again. Like I got to see like this like sort of really beautiful like resolution that, that took place. And it was like, things were not ever the same. It's not like it was a beautiful, like, you know, la-di-da, we're best friends again. We never were, but it wasn't anything like that. But it was a redeeming situation that I wouldn't have gotten to experience had we not had this engagement. And I feel like it's an example of God's grace and mercy working through this scenario to carry on the work in some form or fashion, despite these two humans getting into a fight. It didn't destroy the relationship. It was encouraging in the end. And we're going to miss, we're going to miss these opportunities for encouragement. We're going to miss the chance to see God work if we don't know people in ways like that. So, I think we talked last week about Triad, the, the, the unfortunate video situation, but... You got the message. Um, be in a triad if you can. A- attend our gatherings in person if, if, if you're able to. Have conversations. Be honest. Be loving. Be kind. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I, I, don't, I like to be alone. I don't like, I, don't like, I don't like people that much, honestly. I know it's weird to say, but you all feel that way sometimes. I like to be alone, but we, we have to fight. We have to push to be engaged in lives. And I think that God works through that to accomplish purposes. So Hebrews 10, 24, I used to get annoyed when a friend of mine quoted this all the time. It's kind of cringeworthy for me to quote it. It's a good passage. Sorry, I shouldn't have even said that, but it says this. It says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. So I was thinking about this week, uh, thinking about this this week. There are people more and more, I think, coming onto the scene, like thought leaders, ministry leaders throughout churches across the world. They're suggesting that we churches, Christians, are going to experience a time of spiritual pandemic in the coming years as, as part of the continuing fallout from the virus. Because really, the, the virus is, is one crisis, right? There are a lot of crises surrounding it. You know, substance abuse, physical abuse, neglect, isolation, loneliness, you know, all, all those things that accompany this situation. So I was listening to um, some people talk about this. And one of them raised the idea, it's a social economic concept called 
um, and I went and found the paper that he was referring to, weak ties. I don't know if you've ever heard this concept, weak ties and strong ties. So weak ties are crucial to our social fabric. And just stick with me here. Weak ties are like people that come that you see maybe once a week. You don't really know them. You might have small talk. You talk about the weather. Hey, I like your shoes. And that's kind of it. You might know what they do for a living. Uh, They've never been in your home. You've never been in their home. Someone you see at the grocery store routinely. The guy you purchase gasoline from. um, Guy, your farmer at the farmer's market. Whatever. Not your best friends. You have your best friends. Those are your strong ties. You have your family. Strong ties. But their theory is that weak ties are what really holds the fabric of society together. Because if you think about it, um, much of our capacity to navigate socially comes from weak ties. So, for instance, I only know, you know a handful of people as a strong tie. If I'm looking for a job, there might be 100 people that I know as a weak tie. And my opportunity to like, engage with them on, hey, do you know anybody that works at this company? I'm trying to get my foot in the door. Oh, I don't, but my friend does, right? Another weak tie that person has. So that's just an example of how like weak ties hold it all together. You would think it's a little counterintuitive. You think strong relationships do, and those are crucial. That's not just what, that's not what we're talking about. Um, six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. That's a weak tie concept. Um, so if you know what I'm talking about there, if not, look it up. So, um, it's a stabilizing force of society. It helps you feel at home when you're able to establish weak ties when you move or relocate your life to somewhere. I've done that several times on the run from the law, and that's what happens. You have to move, and you have to establish routines and connections again. I'm not on run from the law. Trust me. What's happened in the pandemic, though? Our weak ties have been demolished, a lot of them. They've been, we've been cut off from them. I still have my family. My, my strong ties are probably stronger than ever, honestly. But the unsettled, like, disruption, there's this, like, confusion when we walk out on the street. They're like, hey, I know this person. I haven't seen them for a year. Like, where are they? Um, that's, that's weak ties being just decimated. Those connections just being severed in a lot of cases, totally, or at least just stunted, right? Arrested development. That's, that's what's happened. Um, I'm not sure how much time I have because someone didn't set the timer earlier, but I have a friend from a previous place where I lived. Um, he was an, he was an older gentleman. He was a widower. His name was Forrest. He was a classic weak tie situation that developed between us. He'd been a member of this church for a long, long time. He's one of the few people that held it together when it almost died. We show up. We kind of sit behind him. We'd done that for a couple weeks. One day, he kind of stiffly turns around. He's in his 80s. Hands me a piece of gum. Just doesn't say anything. Just hands me a piece of gum. From there, we developed a casual relationship. He, we invited him over to our small group to host in our house, and he came. He, it was like a bunch of young people and Forrest, who was in his 80s. Grew up on a farm during the Depression, during the drought years of the 30s, and he was 
He's telling a story about the cracks in the ground on his farm, right? It was a very, like, interesting experience. But classic weak tie connection. It wasn't my best friend. It wasn't like Tuesdays with Maury situation. But he was a meaningful person in my life. And it afforded me a connection to an older person who had a variety of life experiences that I couldn't even perceive of. And he shared it with our group, right? And I think we were all just kind of like, oh, wow, he's an interesting guy. He has interesting stories. Before, he was just like the guy kind of frumpy, sitting up on the front, passing out pieces of gum to people. But this weak connection, like, really became something special, even though we never became best friends. Forrest died, and um, I got to do his funeral. It was, it was nice. But he was just uh, a sweet old guy. Developed a connection through this weak tie concept. In this thing I was listening to, they suggested that 30, most statistics are made up, as you know, but like 75% of them. 33% of people in our churches have just disappeared. They're just gone. That's not every church. I don't, I don't think that's this church, but 33% of people have just disappeared. That's weak ties being decimated. And if we're thinking about COVID holistically, right, not just focused on the virus specifically, but if we're thinking about it holistically, this suggests that connection is important for our spiritual health and that social distancing could be detrimental to our spiritual health, in fact. It it can be. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. God has, has... engineered spiritual blessing, redemptive stories, points of connection with other brothers and sisters that we wouldn't normally have. He's engineered that and he's aligned it and he's aligned his goodness to come through some of these more casual connections that we have. He's engineered society to be somewhat based on them. So is is Zoom Church here to stay? I don't know the question to that. I think it's something that people are starting to ask now. What do, we, what do we do with this? In some regards, it's totally been a godsend, right? But we just have to start to ask these questions. What does this mean for our connections? We have to enter into that discussion. And I just really want to emphasize that I, I don't want it to be based off of, and we shouldn't want it to be based off of our, our, our preferences, but rather asking the question, What best positions us to witness and participate in God's work among us? What best positions us to witness and participate in God's work among us? To see God bringing a movement through human failings and strivings. So in conclusion, just some observations. The Christian life is a call to entrust our lives to the great shepherd. To grow and trust his honed-in shepherd instincts. To not repulse at his shepherd staff, extending out to corral us. Sometimes he uses turbulent waters of messy human experience to increase our faith and to demonstrate that he is faithful in getting us across to the other side of the river. 
Let me pray. This is a prayer supposedly by uh, St. Augustine from the year 430. And I'll wrap up. We'll be done. Lord, we thank you with our whole heart. O beloved Father, for the precious blood of your dear Son, which he shed for our sake, and by which you daily cleanse, quicken, and sanctify us in your holy church, and make us partakers of your divine nature. We thank you for the great and unspeakable love, though we were not worthy of it, when you redeemed us by your own Son, who is our high priest and mediator, the true shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep of his flock. Amen. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put together in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Please partake as I read the next passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.